Stay hungry. Stay foolish. I'm here with Michael B. Horn. I said we'd follow up with a part two. Michael's kindly given us his time ahead of a board meeting, believe it or not. So, Michael, great to have you back, man. Yeah, it's good to be back. We, we had so much fun the first time, so I'm excited for round two. There's so much value in this book. I'm not going to keep saying that, but I wanted to do what you do in the book and, and keep coming back to the principles and the theory of disruptive innovation. You tell us about the clash of student-centric technologies versus monolithic technology. And I wanted to frame this, as I said, in disruptive innovation, because there's two lessons throughout this book, which I love the way you do that. Because you say, in every organization, there are forces that shape and morph every new innovative proposal, so that it fits the existing organization's own business model, rather than fitting the market it was intended to serve. One way to understand these forces in education is to visualize how the legislative process works itself. I'd love if you'd start here. Yeah, so this is one of the central pieces I think that people miss about disruptive innovation because they focus so much on the technology and the thing rather than the importance of the model in which it's deployed. And the quick example I love to say is uh, in the mid-2000s, I was at America Online. I got to work on AOL Pictures. Most of your audience probably has no idea what AOL Pictures was for this reason, which is that I, I helped construct the business plan and within days of it coming out, marketing came to me and said, well, your plan would reach these people, but we don't have any campaigns that reach those people. But if you work with us and shift it, you know, we won't kill it. And then finance came to me and said, you're promising margins like this and revenues of this. No way that'll work. But if you work with us, you know, we can get it over the hurdle rate. So I changed my assumptions and all the plan. You get the idea, right? Every single department over a matter of several weeks continually came to me. And what ultimately came out of the process was an innovation that met the needs of AOL's existing business model, but not the customers for whom it was in fact intended. And so Google Photos or what you know, Instagram, whatever you want to say, right? Like way more popular uh, than AOL, which was meeting the needs of the business, not the needs of the people for whom it was intended. And this happens in all organizations is that you take a new technology, it's primitive by comparison to the old of what you're doing, and the organization's instinct is to try to cram it into the existing operating model, make it sort of uh, compete with the existing, or it morphs it and twists it to fit the needs of the existing organization rather than this new need. So in education, just really briefly, we use computers to deliver one-size-fits-all learning, right? That what we talked about last week, like we're all going to move at the same pace, same day. We're going to use electronic whiteboards and still do lectures or whatever it might be rather than, oh, gee, what people really need is that tutor-like experience and everyone moving at different pathways and paces. Uh, but if you cram it in the existing schooling model, it, it literally is just, it's wrenching for people to get it to, uh, to, to the right point for which the innovation is, it will have the most transformational impact, shall we say. And so that's in business, it's in schooling. I would argue it's in, to your point, it's in Congress, it's in the legislative process where, you know, senator comes out with what they think is a great idea for a social problem. Every single senator has to have their say and attach their line to this and adjust that and so forth. So what comes out meets the needs of the overall legislative body as opposed to perhaps the original constituency for what it, which it was built. That's just the way organizations work. It's neither good nor bad. There's both in it. But if you want something transformational that's different from what the organization has historically done, 
you need to get out of the existing business model or organizational model to implement it. I wanted to bring it back to something there. So you mentioned this about uh, an example to give our audience to make it to bring it to life a little bit was uh, I, I experienced this in media, for example, so bringing in digital sales, trying to br introduce digital sales, and then the sales team see as a threat, and then actually try to cram it into what they're selling and trying to get incentivized on it. But it doesn't make sense because it makes so little money. So then they give it away as free in order to sell their existing product. I'd love your thoughts on that because that is a it's a mental model or it's it's a, a phenomenon that happens time and time again. And also another thing if you wouldn't mind commenting on was you and AOL there being sent to this person and that department, etc. Because many of our audience are those people. And I think it's really important to for them to know when they're stuck in that cycle, and perhaps some advice on what they should do. Yeah, well, so I'll say on the on the latter first, Clay was fond of saying that people are not stupid. They do stupid things because of the organizations they're trapped in, <laughs> right? You put someone in this smart organization, right, to the side with different incentives, they'll do, quote unquote, the right things. And so I think for people that are stuck where they're trying to innovate and each department is trying to come out to them and get them to shift what they're doing to meet the needs of the organization – you know, that's where you need to go up a level or maybe a few and say, hey, we really need a separate process here if we're trying to do something disruptive uh, and, and have a separate team that has some freedom from the existing structure uh, to be able to innovate and prioritize this. And, and we call it the tool of separation. You really need to be able to wield that to give the autonomy to rethink the business model uh, itself. If you're one of those people that's the finance department of the marketing hammering down right the uh, various things that are consigning it to look like the old, you need to just ask yourself, hey, is this for the interests of the existing organization or is this an innovation that's trying to do something transformational? In which case, maybe uh, you know my advice to you know the Michael of the world bringing me this business plan would be like, look. I've got to do this because this is what this organization needs with its overhead. And I'm not going to kill the existing organization. But what I'm seeing is you're introducing a plan. Fundamentally, it's not going to work inside of the shell. I think we need to figure out a way to create a different business model around it that's separate uh, from our existing organization. And, you know, th this speaks to the larger uh, uh, piece that you're talking about in, in terms of what we, you know, what we see is just that need for autonomy uh, and, and freedom. And, and this is in, in the media industry. You, you talked about Clark Gilbert, uh, who did his doctoral research under Clay Christensen, has this amazing dissertation where he profiles exactly how this plays out in the newspaper industry. And what you see is exactly what you just described, which is those newspapers, which were most of them, that tried to do digital as uh, within their existing organization, the salespeople didn't really push it. You couldn't charge as much initially, right? So it didn't make sense. It was sort of that add-on that you'd get just to juice the sales or whatever else. But it wasn't transformational. Whereas the one or two newspapers that he tracked that made it a transformational thing and a real growth engine, uh, they treated it as a totally separate unit with its own sales force that had the freedom to prioritize this because they weren't selling print ads in the old, right? And so I think it's a really important lesson that in the short term, it may feel like we're putting a lot more overhead and more people on it. But that's because if we think this is the new wave of growth or the new wave that we want to be doing something in the long run, uh, 
you, you need to build the organization and, and look, be patient for profit. Um, excuse me, patient for growth, impatient for profit. Uh, so, so we're not overloading the organization too early with costs, but you may, you know, it, it, it may be far more expensive in the long run if you don't separate it out and put that team around it. One of the things you mentioned there is, is typical, which is also you mentioned finance, for example. So finance will come along and go, when will this be profitable? When's it going to show potential in the future? How much is it going to cost us? And there's, they're always really loaded questions for people. And I thought we'd illustrate this because you use histories of NIPRO, Merrill Lynch, RCA to illustrate this problem and show how a manager can solve it. And maybe we could honor NIPRO's Gordon Langton, who passed away in March 2021, with the story of his transformation and his obstacles that he had to overcome. I didn't realize he had passed away. Thanks for, uh, I, uh, he, you know, he's a, he and Nipro are a famous case study in Clay's class. And uh, essentially, uh, the, the quick part of the story is this was a plastic injection molding um, business, and they had several different plants. Um, and uh, they came up with this new technology that would enable far more precise uh, molding at very small, uh, like very small, precise uh, uh, uh specifications, shall we say. And the intent in Gordon's mind was that uh, rather than being this sort of very custom, big shop, you know, large order sizes, uh, but not large volume, that they could use this technology to go much more aggressively um, into this new uh, into this new market of, of, of very small, precise, large volume orders. And yet when he looked at it, what he realized was all of the plants, in effect, implemented it uh, to, well, most of them returned the machine, I should say. I think only two, if I recall the case study correctly, uh, actually adopted it. And when he looked at what they were doing with it, they were using it to sustain uh, their existing model of large, uh, uh, large dollar sizes, but small batches of manufacturing, in essence, uh, around battery cases. So much smaller, you know, precise things, and that's how they had adapted the technology to meet the existing business model as opposed to that for which it was originally intended. Uh, and ultimately, right, the, the, the solution was to use it in a, new, uh, in, in a new plant that had the freedom with its own sales force to take orders in line with what he had conceived the market possibilities could be for this new technology he had identified. And, and and being able to do that, again, that's that separation, that autonomy from the existing incentives was so critical uh, to be a, being able to use it in the way that it was uh, originally thought out. Like one, one of the things I think is so useful and why I, I love this book is the knowledge, introducing new knowledge that people were unaware of helps them make the decisions. Like, for example, for when, when I was stuck in that loop of like you were an AOL trying to get the sales team to understand, I, I learned that education and bringing new information to the table was the way not thinking they were idiots for not getting it. Yeah. That, like that was a reflection on me, not them. And that empathy is so important because people don't know what they don't know. And particularly when it's dealing with the future. But I thought we'd, we'd illustrate a little bit more with the great case study you talk about Sony here about the, yeah. the TVs and the evolution of TVs, because that speaks to the changes in the ecosystem and the incentives in the ecosystem, for example, the TV repair people, this is a brilliant case study. 
This is one of my favorites also. So uh, RCA and Zenith in the 1940s, 50s, 60s were the dominant consumer electronics companies of the time. They made their products uh, and they were powered by vacuum tubes, which were about the size of your fist. Uh, They blew out every once in a while and you'd have to repair them, but they enabled incredible technological marvels of the time. Floor standing televisions, uh, uh, tabletop radios with, with, you know, pretty good fidelity and so forth. And in 1947, scientists out of Bell Laboratories uh, invented the transistor, the first foray into solid-state electronics. And all of the companies, RCA, Zenith, and so forth, saw the transistor and they're like, this is exciting. It's more durable. It can enable uh, power-hungry devices and smaller applications. It's not there yet, right? It's not as good as a vacuum tube. And aside, by the way, it's still not as good as a vacuum tube at the high end. Like in the military applications where they have very demanding power needs, you still need to use vacuum tubes. Um, but they said if if we take a license to it and we stick it in our labs and do it and just invest in R&D on it, uh, we can make it performance competitive with the vacuum tubes. We'll just swap them out for our existing products. No one will know the difference and they'll be thrilled. So they did exactly that. They framed it essentially as a technology problem, did a lot of research and development on it. Uh, adjusted for today's dollars, I think it's probably about $2 billion that they invested uh, in, in perfecting it. But that performance hurdle was so high that you could never look at it and say, oh, yeah, we ought to go with the transistor instead of the vacuum tube. Meanwhile, obviously the world did transition and transform into consumer electronics powered by transistors as opposed to vacuum tubes. But it started in 1952 with the the hearing aid. And, you know, this was an application that needed very little power with the transistor that could fuel very, you know, handle very little power. And a vacuum tube had always been impractical, right, for, for the hearing aid. So it was perfect. And then three years later, Sony in Japan that no one had heard of, and when they heard of them, they didn't think much of them, came out with this pocket transistor radio. Tinny, static lace, terrible audio quality, but they didn't sell it to people who were buying the tabletop radios from RCA and Zenith. They sold it instead to non-consumers. Those people who, you know, as Clay used to fondly say, the low end of humanity, uh, people today we call teenagers, who were delighted with this quote-unquote crummy product because for them it was great. They had no radio yesterday. Now for just a few dollars, they could buy a radio and it was portable. So they could drop it in their shirt pocket, run out of earshot of their parents and listen to the, you know, the burgeoning rock and roll music they were getting excited about. And it got better and better. In 1959, Sony introduces uh, a small black and white television. Not as good as the large floor-standing TVs you know, from RCA, but... For people with small apartments, small pocketbooks, better than the alternative, nothing at all. Gets better and better. And by the late 60s, RCA's consumer electronics business completely vaporizes as Sony has gotten good enough and people rapidly are migrating to this more affordable, more durable, by the way, technology. And, you know, it's punishing, right? Because RCA spent way more money than Sony ever did perfecting the transistor. They saw it before Sony did way before. And yet Sony won the day and RCA did not. And that's really what this is about, right? Like they invested in it thinking it would sustain their existing business model as opposed to viewing it as something disruptive, which therefore requires its own model.
regarding this, regarding the the move to a student centric learning model, the great book, Mr. Fuller said all progress happens in the outlaw area. And you say here, so think of that company like RCA, it's got a, a proven model that works, they're successful, they're investing in, in R&D. But it's, it's in the paradigm of sustaining the innovation that exists. And you say, in some of the earliest applications of student centric learning, it will arise outside the public schooling system, the adoption decisions in this stage will be dispersed, they will be made principal by principal, teacher by teacher, parent by parent, student by student, and subject by subject. I love that quote, because this idea that it's like the William Gibson quote that the future is already here. It's just it's just not evenly distributed yet. And we can take advantage of that in organizations. So we're not the next RCA. Yeah, 100%. And you can start to see the pattern right over time and realize that when students are opting for tutoring uh, through online technology, or they're going into an out school class, or Khan Academy has grown to 100 million users worldwide, or ABC Mouse Age of Learning is 50 million users worldwide, or Byjuice in India is, I, I can't remember the valuation, but like 20 billion or something like that, right? That people are one by one making the decisions to move to alternative ways of getting a tutor, of getting their primary learning in some cases, uh, and so forth. And that is piece by piece this happening, I think. Um, and the system is doing it too. And by the way, they figured out ways, you know, to the argument in chapter two of the book that more so than any other organization, schools have managed to negotiate these adaptations in, in, in really interesting ways. I would argue there's many classrooms that have crammed, you know, the, the computers into their existing classrooms and yet have figured out ways to personalize more, whether they're creating simple station rotations. Uh, one of my favorites is Lexia Learning. I think it's a phenomenal way to learn reading uh, that doesn't require everyone moving lockstep. Um, it's not all the way to these mastery-based progressions that we were talking about in the last session with Steve Spear and the Toyota versus Chrysler model, uh, but it steps forward and yet, perhaps the biggest leapfrogs are completely and entirely outside the purview of the system. I want, wanted to uh, build a bit on cramming because I, I think some of the language you give us for disruptive innovation through this book as well is, is fantastically done. One of them was this idea of we often use the term lipstick on a pig, or as uh, Seth Godin, as he wrote in his book, a meatball Sunday. So it's still it's still a basic thing, but you sprinkle on some toppings and some cream, and all of a sudden, ta-da, it's digital. Or I call this concept the, the Suez Canal effect after the, the big disaster that we had. So the, the platform needs to be changed, not the tools that are on the platform. So the, the ships are increasingly big, but the platform can't take it. And this is an effect that's happening throughout the education system. 100%. And it goes to another piece of this, which is that really, it's not just one innovation that disrupts the paradigm. It's a whole ecosystem or value chain that disruptively uh, uh, over time replaces another one. So by illustration, let's stay with that RCA being disrupted by Sony story. RCA existed in, in a business ecosystem, right, of its customers, suppliers of its product, and it sold, not direct, but through appliance stores, which made their money uh, by 
essentially replacing the blown out vacuum tubes that happened every once in a while. So their money was actually made in repair. Okay, along comes Sony with this transistor powered product and all of a sudden uh, these appliance stores can't make money by selling it because transistors don't blow out. So there's no repair, there's no aftermarket where they historically made their money and their margins. So they say, sorry, we don't have any use for this. And it's different customers, right? As we talked about in the, in the story. Fortunately for Sony, in 1962 gets birthed Target, Walmart, and Kmart all in the same year. And this is you know, discount retail, <laughs> no ability to service things in the aftermarket with a product that doesn't need servicing in the aftermarket. And it's so simple that again, teenagers and others can figure out how to buy them and, and, and so forth. And so this whole value chain over time disruptively replaces the appliance stores and the RCA powered consumer electronics and so and the supply chain and so forth. And, and that's how we typically see this work is it's a system disrupting a system. Same thing happened in computers, by the way, right? IBM used to do all the sales for their mainframes in the personal computers. It was through CompUSA and then Dell does it direct right through its website over time. We see this over and over again, where it's really a system disrupts a system. Uh, and so that's an important, I think, thing to keep in mind in both the education context. It's frustrating because it means the progress is going to be super slow. Uh, but this is really ultimately system change we're talking about. It just turns out typically you don't change systems by reconfiguring everything inside. They they do get replaced over time by the, by the new. Yeah, and it, it reminds me so much of evolution. Like, I mean, it's, it's this evolutionary pressure, like you talked about, this extrinsic pressure that forces the evolution. But one of the ones I loved that you talk about is many, many people who work in Salesforce listen to this show and, and Salesforce has a, an ecosystem where people can build applications, you then liken that and bear in mind that the book was 10 years old, you, you wrote this 10 years ago when that was in its infancy, and you predicted that the same thing would happen in education software. Yeah, that's exactly right. Our, our sense was that ultimately, you'd have a facilitated network, right, where uh, the organization at the middle, uh, and we didn't have the language, by the way, of uh, platform or uh, aggregator, to use a Ben Thompson term right today, which are, are two different things. And I think it'd be interesting to think about both in education as, as a future application. Um, but, but ultimately, this facilitated network where there would be people creating things for the network and people consuming things uh, from the network. And, you know, this is eBay, this is Facebook, there's uh, lots of good examples of how this plays out. Salesforce is a vibrant ecosystem of applications and then cons and then uh, business consumers largely, right, who are able to uh, customize, in effect, the instantiation of Salesforce for their particular business case and needs and so forth, uh, which, which is tremendous. And so as a result of that, you see Salesforce doing amazing things in education, let alone all the business applications where it got its start, uh, because of that customizability and ability to build into the platform. Uh, and I, you know, I think the same thing, if we're going to truly reach all learners, I think it's very unlikely there's going to be a silver bullet technology that somehow magically figures out how to serve each learner with all the different examples and historical relevant analogies and whatever else you need because you know you and I have dramatically different background knowledge and so forth from our youth and growing up and you just think about this long tail of learners what that means from a knowledge perspective and scaffolding instruction and so it's much more likely I think individual teachers individual parents individual students 
we'll build these modules in a variety of ways that will uh, snap together to create coherence, uh, uh, you know, and standards, I think will be a backbone of that for sure. But the content itself, uh, I think could be widely ranging if we think of this as a facilitated network in the future. And, and I'll say, you know, the book first came out, I guess, 2008, and then we revised it 2010. And it felt like, and it still, I still wonder, could Khan Academy or something like that be that in the future? It hasn't been architected that way um, to this point, but but it's it's a question. And then I, I, you know, I talk to CTOs at big companies and they're like, oh gosh, I wish corporate learning were like K-12 learning. And I'm like, how do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, I get all these complicated packages and whatever else to stay up to, you know, to learn the latest language or programming thing or whatever. Whereas my kid, they don't understand something. They just jump on YouTube. <laughs> and so I kind of wonder, has YouTube already become that place with this marketplace of, of, of content and, and, and so forth? And, you know, maybe that's then what Udemy and others of these that have become big really are, is that facilitated network that we described. And it's materialized, at least in video in the first instantiation, and I wonder, will we start to see more intricate simulations and different ways of architecting these experiences in the next generation? One of the things that has come up on the show a few times is, you know, screen time is not good for kids. And you kind of go, well, not all screen time is created equal. It depends on what they're doing. And we had Bob Johansson from Institute of the Future on the show before talking about his book, Full Spectrum Thinking. And he said, you know, a lot of these companies who are software companies now are building data visualization tools for the future. So they're using their existing knowledge of software and beautiful exhibits of the creative output of those, the animations, etc. But I thought about how interesting that would be for kids who are already very familiar with the platforms. What are you seeing in that space? we think nothing of FaceTiming with grandma <laughs> because it's an interactive experience, right? So that's at the low level of what you just implied, where it can go all the way up to creating videos and CAD software and all sorts of you know fun mashups and all of Scratch, right, is basically object-oriented uh, uh, computer programming, which is phenomenal. It allows so many people to get understandings of how you build something and construct in basic logic and computational thinking models without perhaps having all the background knowledge on a specific language of, of word-based coding, right? Um, and so I, I think we're seeing a lot of very cool applications for kids increasingly doing that and realizing, hey, for the really young learners, even better if you can in engage mom and dad. Now there's a continuum on that, right? Because Sometimes mom and dad use the technology to give themselves an hour break to get dinner on the table. I'm, I, I'm guilty of that every single afternoon with my kids. You know, I pick them up and then Tuesday through Thursday, they say, I want to hop on the Kindle. Sure, go ahead. I need the hour to get dinner ready anyway. Um, but, you know, in, in that context, though, I'm way more excited when they pick something where they get to be snapping and, and editing film together or whatever else uh, than... They're just going to sit there and watch an hour-long show, and they get up afterwards, and they're groggy and so forth. So, look, there's a place for everything. I think passive TV is a wonderful uh, thing in limited doses, uh, but I think that's sort of it with technology more generally, which is moderation and everything. Yeah, your kids, you know, we talked about our health love. Like, yeah, they should be outside getting vitamin D and running around and so forth, and Technology is really good at building some background knowledge and giving them some active learning experiences that they would never otherwise get. Like my kids, 
you know, they bring up concepts. The other day we were ordering from a Cuban restaurant. My youngest daughter, seven, says, uh, you know, oh, we should get these dishes. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. I see it on the menu. I'm like, what What are they? She starts telling me the ingredients because she's seen it on her Kindle and like learned about the Cuban culture. I, that's incredible. Like that doesn't happen. You know, and someone, a cynic might say, well, books and so forth. This is a kid having agency at their fingertips to be able to pull that information in a way that I can never provide. That's really neat. That is so awesome, man. I love that. I love I, and I have the same experiences. And I just think that's so beautiful. When a kid tells you something, and, and you're open to it, and you listen to it, and you learn from it. It's because it's different sources, like you say. But yep, that, that point about us learning and, you know, learning from the kids or whatever. I want to emphasize your work is your work is the full spectrum of learning. You you're yeah. a consultant in all realms of learning your other book blended as well. It's fantastic. There's a blended workbook. You also have a kid's book as well that you wrote with your wife. And <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll ask you about them at the end of the show. But I, I just wanted to get here in case we run out of time again, which is the idea of what your your former colleague and friend Michelle Weiss had talked about long life learning. So we're living longer, we probably won't retire at 65 much longer because the system can't really afford it. <laughs> That's one thing. But also, we probably won't want to retire, we probably will want some type of uh, we probably get some type of purpose and meaning from our work. And I'd love your thoughts on that whole idea, like Michelle, and you talk about this whole idea of the more on and off ramps from education as you have to reinvent yourself for longer in life. My current boss, Rachel Romer Carlson, the CEO of Guild Education, she loves to say the four and 40 model is basically dead. And we're at an every four model where every four years, you know, you're your technology stack, your knowledge stack and so forth has eroded. And you need to consciously, particularly for a frontline employee these days, consciously upskill and reskill yourself. If you're in the digital world, you may be doing that on a very frequent basis where you're constantly pulling in new information, almost through osmosis. Sometimes you may have to make time to say, I need a month to go deep on something, right? Or I need to take time off to go deep in a formal program whatever it is, the point is that this need in a knowledge economy with the pace of technological progress being what it is, to continually learn new skills and be able to apply them is going to be vital. And so we ultimately, I think a major purpose of K-12 education is to teach learners to be to have the agency to be able to direct their learning in the future, uh, to learn metacognition, how they learn, best and be able to uh, curate their own learning journey by the end so that when they go in the real world, they can also make those choices at whatever interval and sequences and so forth make sense for them so that they are constantly investing in their learning to stay up with the changing world and be able to reach and realize whatever career ambitions and passions that they might have in the process, right? This is Part of this is about keeping up. Part of this is the world's changing and you're going to need to have new roles. And part of this is they are going to be super passionate about something and want to go achieve a dream and extend themselves in some meaningful way. And so our education and workforce systems being more and more open to a permeable boundary between them that makes it less hard 
to invest in education and less hard to then get back into the next step of work, uh, I think is going to be absolutely imperative as we move forward. Now I have a final quote that I'm going to quote, but I'm going to ask you then about your final message for audience. Where can people find out? I mentioned those books you do. I mentioned how you do consulting and keynotes, etc. Where can people find you? And what other books do you have available? Yeah, so the simplest way uh, to find me, and, and I appreciate the question, uh, is michaelbhorn.com. It's my personal website. Uh, I'm on Twitter at michaelbhorn. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Um, and you can check out my Substack newsletter uh, as well, The Future of Education, uh, which uh, you can get to through my website or just jump in on Substack directly. Send uh, uh, for the free subscribers, I send two uh, newsletters a month. And then for those who pay, you're getting a, a, at least a weekly uh, update on, on things that I'm writing and speaking about and so forth. Um, so, so definitely those are the easiest ways to keep track of me. In terms of books, uh, Disrupting Class obviously was the, was the first blended uh, and then the blended workbook. There was also a book I edited uh, called Private Enterprise in Public Education, uh, which is about the role of for-profits in education, which is a very contentious space. But I think we made a very important contribution in reframing how to think about them uh, in, in, in the education landscape. Uh, and then my latest on uh uh, on education was called Choosing College, uh, which uses the jobs to be done methodology about why do students uh, choose any form of post-secondary education. So that's corporate learning to MOOCs to formal colleges. Uh, and then as you noted, uh, we've got a, a book call out called Goodnight Box, uh, which is for uh, uh, y younger children and, and their parents, perhaps most uh, importantly, uh, around introducing them to the CrossFit uh, and, and functional fitness movements uh, that are important to us and, and sort of what I'm working on in the future. My wife and I uh, got to co-author that together and we have a series of other children's books uh, planned around some of the great role models that are in that CrossFit world, specifically for women, um, because that's, uh, as the father of two daughters, that's become something more important uh, uh, to both of us. And then uh, working on a new book right now called From Reopen to Reinvent uh, around how should K-12 reinvent itself coming out of COVID and that it's not just enough to reopen and sort of go back to normal. We've really got to rethink a lot of these systems in the ways that we've been talking about uh, over the last few days. I have a final quote, Michael. Uh, I love this quote. There was so many, but I picked one. And then perhaps you leave us with your thoughts on forging a consensus for change and giving schools the right structure to innovate and just a very quick overview of those thoughts. You say in the book, the road to realizing our highest hopes for our schools is not an easy one. But with breakthroughs occurring every day in understanding how children learn and how they build intellectual capacity, there is a great opportunity to make strides in the years ahead. Provided we do so with an understanding of the root causes of why schools have struggled so much. If we embark upon the promising path we outline in this book, we can make schooling intrinsically motivating and help our children maximize their individual potential to realize their most daring dreams. I absolutely love that. That's my parting quote that I pulled from the book. But what about you? What's what's a message you have perhaps for those people out there, both in, in disruption and change in themselves and indeed in the education system? So I, I guess I would say, and by the way, that was my favorite line of the book, I think, to write. Good. We didn't plan that. <laughs> no, we didn't. I, I just, I remember writing those words and this notion of your daring dreams and, and not seeing a floor, but instead imagining a ceiling for every 
child that is not there that they can reach for the sky um, is really, uh, I think, important, right? School should lift the floor and it should lift the ceiling. It should do both. And and so uh, it, that was incredibly, I think, impactful. And, and the point there, right, of how do we recognize that all individuals are very motivated to feel successful and experience vibrant lives with others and that they want lives of choice and meaning and so forth. And for some, the way school is set up today, it does work. But for the majority, it's not working. And so building within that, I think, and and forging a path forward where people can say, hey, we may not agree on this food fight or that, but ultimately we want to allow each individual their best shot at their best life. I think we've really got to organize around that intrinsic motivation and making school fundamentally exciting. Because as we talked about in the early part of, uh, of, of our past talk, a lot of that extrinsic motivation is not there anymore. And so you've really got to weave in with what we, the, the latest evidence from the science of learning and, and, and make these schools uh, something that someone can hire to be successful. Brilliant book. I highly recommend it for people, not even in the education field. It's such a brilliant way to learn about innovation. Disrupting class, how disruptive innovation will change the world learns. The co-author of that book and future guest of the show, Michael, you're you're in now, man. I have to bring you back to talk about that new book in particular. Michael B. Horn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I, hey, thank you so much for having me and for hosting a really in-depth uh, a set of insights and conversations. I appreciate it.